Hello and welcome to the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. Sadly, I meet a lot of people who are disappointed with God. They had expectations of what they felt God was going to do and their prayer or their expectation hasn't been met. And some of the most difficult situations are where people feel that they had a promise from God. They had a a scripture or a word given to them that they particularly felt was going to help them through a situation. They may have made choices. They may have made particular decisions around that promise or that scripture. And it turned out to be wrong. And they feel that God has let them down. Expectations are really important. We're going to see in this next study in John chapter 11 that Jesus says something that could have been misunderstood and perhaps was by those who heard it. We've got to the end of John chapter 10 where Jesus has been talking about being the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep, the one who will allow no one to snatch us out of his hand. And he finished with that radical statement that he and the Father are one. And these are all studies that we've looked at before that you may want to uh, go back and look at. And we're going to move now into John chapter 11, which lots of us will know is the story of Lazarus. It may be a story that's familiar with us. It may be that you're expecting me to do this in one session, but if you know me well enough, you will know that as I've looked at this, at the moment it looks like about four, it may be more at the end of it. Um, But we're going to go through this bit by bit. Now there was a man named Lazarus. This is John 11, verse 1. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. Now, rather confusingly, there are a number of places called Bethany. And this, what we're going to call the second Bethany, was one that was near Jerusalem. Now, earlier, where they meet uh, John's disciples, where the people start to follow Jesus, in, earlier in John's Gospel, that's a different Bethany. But this is Bethany near, um, near Jerusalem. Now, John then tells us a little bit of explanation of who Mary and Martha and Lazarus were, this little family. They're adults. Uh, And in verse 2, he says, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, interestingly, if well, I don't know whether it's interesting or not, but I'll tell you anyway. uh, Actually, John is going to tell us that story in chapter 12. So he's kind of assuming that we've got an idea of who Mary and Martha are, although he hasn't actually told us the story of the perfume. Uh, Luke tells us the story that uh, Mary and Martha uh, were waiting for Jesus and one uh, uh, was annoyed with the other sister for not um, uh, helping get things ready. But that's another story. It's in Luke. And we will come back to that a little bit later because uh, not later today, but later in this chapter because it has a little bit of implications. But we're going to go on to verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So Lazarus is unwell. And uh, there's no particular definition of what sick means, but there would have been an assumption that this was a serious illness. Why does she she send the message, the one who you love? And sometimes we might feel that this is some kind of favoritism, that uh, are there people that Jesus doesn't love? 
But it's not that at all. It's a, it's a phrase. It's a, 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 just a way in which John particularly describes friends. So it's not a favorite. And he uses it to describe himself. He describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it, it just means this was someone who knew Jesus well. And yes, Jesus loves them, but that doesn't mean he doesn't love other people. But it was someone that he knew well. So it's interesting that Lazarus is described in this way. And so we can probably infer that Lazarus was a follower, a disciple of Jesus, but he was not one of the 12. And sometimes I think people do get a little bit confused thinking that Jesus had only 12 disciples. He was seeking to make as many disciples as he could. There's another passage that talk about there being over 70 disciples and then other places far more than that. There were 12 who were asked to follow Jesus from town to town and be with him uh, full time. So there were some full time disciples and there were 12 of them and they become the 12 apostles, the 12 uh, messengers of the church. Although technically 11 of them become part of the uh, 12 apostles and others are added. But that's another story for another time. Anyway, Lazarus is someone that Jesus knew well and he's loved by Jesus. He's someone in, uh, uh, as a friend who has probably committed himself to following Jesus alongside his sisters. So probably Mary and Martha are also um, disciples as well. Lord, the one who you love is sick. So the message isn't that they're dying. The message isn't, please come. Now we might infer that but there isn't a clarity as to what she is asking of Jesus. Maybe she's just telling him, hoping that Jesus will come and respond. That's probably what's going on. So there is some expectation here that isn't communicated clearly. And that's probably okay because there's a trust in Jesus. There's a trust that he will do the right thing. I hope there isn't. But some might say there was perhaps a fear of asking, that Jesus was too important or significant to ask him to come. That may have been the case. Whatever is going on, she wants Jesus to know that, G that Lazarus is very, very ill. Now, why does she want Jesus to know? Because there is a, a, an expectation and a hope that he will be able to do something. But that expectation and hope is not clearly spelt out. And then we come to this next verse, which is quite interesting. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, how is he able to say not end in death when we know, as we're going to read uh, on in, in this story in the next sessions or two, that Lazarus does die. Lazarus is dead. And you'll see in a moment that he's probably dead by the time Jesus is told. And it struck me as something that happens a lot, unfortunately, in our culture, where the words of God are not fulfilled in the way we assume they will be fulfilled. Now, when Jesus says this will not end in death, he has a concept 
and the, and the New Testament has this concept as death becoming more about the final destruction of the human being. And what we would call death is what Jesus will call sleep. And he talks about that later in this chapter. So death is the irreversible destruction after judgment, the death that occurs in hell, the burning or the destruction of the body. That seems to be what Jesus often means by death. But there's no, under, no explanation of that here for the messenger going back to Mary and Martha. There's no explanation of that here for the disciples. Clearly, the expectation of those who heard these words and those who, to whom the message was given was that Lazarus was not going to die. So why does Jesus say something like this? I don't think he's intending to confuse, but he is intending us to think carefully. I think he wants to bring hope. These words... Um, so we know, and I, this comes again in a moment or two, we know that where Jesus was was two days' walk away from uh, Lazarus and Bethany. So the messengers had taken two days to get there. They would take two days to get back. We know that later in the chapter when Jesus does get there, that Lazarus has been dead for four days. We can do the maths. The maths would imply that Lazarus was dying or had died at the point of this message being given. And Jesus probably knows that. So he knows that when the message is going to be received two days later, when it takes two days walking to take the message back, he knows that Mary and Martha will have already lost Lazarus. So, but he says to them, tell them that this sickness will not end in death. Well, he doesn't say this specifically, but my assumption is the message was to go back. Why does he do that? He wants to engender a sense of hope that what they feel is the end is not the end. He wants to have, give them strength through their grieving process. And he wants to impart, I think, a sense of peace. But his words were not to be taken as an instruction for action. It was not to say, well, don't care for him or don't pray for him or even not don't bury him. The message, I think, was to be something that was a, a, a source of hope but not an instruction on behaviour. And they were, and that we are, to be careful not to replace reason or common sense And when we hear a promise from the Bible, and when we hear someone bring us a word of encouragement, particularly when we are facing a difficult situation, we have to be very, very careful not to interpret that to be the answer that we want it to be in the precise timescale that we want it to be. Because that wasn't Mary and Martha's experience how they would have interpreted it and the timescale they would have wanted that promise to bring was not what happened. Rather, what we often need to do is the same as what I think Jesus intended for Mary and Martha was to bring a sense of God being with us in the problem, 
And that one day, through heaven or not, so either in this day or in our future life, it will be put right and it will be resolved. And then Jesus says, it is for God's glory. And what do we mean by that phrase? Well, we mean that the greatness, the majesty, the character, the truthfulness, the power, the love of God might be seen by other people. So all of these things, the the truth, the love, the power, the majesty, the the goodness, the love, all of that is, is lumped together in this phrase, the glory. And we want people to see the glory of God. And so what Jesus is saying is that something is going to happen that is going to reveal to other people how great God is. Which leads us with the question, why can't God be glorified in all our desires for healing? Why can't everyone be healed like Lazarus? Remember, Lazarus technically isn't healed He's resurrected. So we might say, well, why doesn't Jesus resurrect everybody? If he's not going to heal everybody, why doesn't he resurrect everybody? And that's a question we've grappled with before. I've done questions of life around this whole question of suffering. It's a huge question. And I'm not going to pretend to answer it adequately now, but please do have a look at at our questions of life on this subject. Or even some of the earlier studies in John, particularly the not why, uh, but what now series that I did around... um, Uh, John uh, 9. I think we need to just say two things, though, at this point. And that is that judgment and heaven has to come. This world cannot be eternal. There has to be a new world where everything that's wrong in this world is ended and where only the good that God intended for this world lives. There has to be a judgment that removes all the wrong, all the evil, all the suffering. And the only way to access and enter into that judgment is either through the return of Christ or through our own death. And so life cannot go on. Ever since Adam and Eve chose to reject God's ways, death has to be a part of ending the evil in our world. There has to be an end. And then a judgment and then the opportunity for a future life. And so if God never allows any Christian to die, then we perpetuate the suffering of this world. And we perpetuate uh, a system that God is wanting to replace with the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. So death is and decay ever since the fall is a part of life, and it cannot be held back. We all have to die. However much faith we have, however many prayers we pray, we're all going to decay and die at different rates and in different ways, but it is unavoidable, and we're all going to be resurrected, and we're all going to face Jesus. And those of us who have put our trust in him and his work on the cross will skip the judgment and maybe literally skip through to the eternal life that Jesus has bought for us. And those of us that have not chosen Jesus will have to have explained to us why we can't do this all again and make heaven as sinful as this world. And we will then face 
the ultimate death, eternal death. So the first reason why God doesn't heal all the time everything is that it simply can't happen that way unless we stop having the, the idea of a future heaven. But the second thing is that to remember that Jesus wants to be glorified through the resurrection of Lazarus. But we need to recognize too that Jesus is also glorified by the patience of his disciples, by the hope of those who persevere and overcome, through the faith of those of us who cling to Jesus even when this world doesn't seem to be working. And a simple glance at the New Testament church shows us that the power of the church was seen more in the overcoming of difficulty than in the supernatural. Now that may seem difficult when you look just at Jesus because he did loads of miracles. But as you look at how the early church unfolds and as you actually look at how Jesus brings glory to himself, it is through the cross, it is through brokenness. John 11, 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There is a huge compassion, a huge care that Jesus has that death is part of life. It's not the way he wanted it. It's not how Adam and Eve was intended, but it's the way it is. And that's why he created eternal life. That's why he came and died and rose again. If this life was all there is, then there is great unfairness. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, he invites us to share in his resurrection. And what's going to happen to Lazarus is, an, is a demonstration of what is to come. It is not the norm for us today. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, now you think, well, so, what's he going to say? So I'll come immediately. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Judea is the, the south, the region around Jerusalem. So why does he stay for two more days? If we, if, how is that loving? Well, as we've already said, he was two days walk away and that he probably knew that, G, that Lazarus was already dead. And so he's sending this message of hope that though they may not understand it, he's sending a message of hope. But why the delay? Well, there are different theories. A possibility is that there was another unknown job to do for those two days that he needed to do. Another more popular theory is that we know that Jerusalem was a hotbed of uh, opposition to Jesus and that it would appear that this is the last time he goes to Jerusalem and this precedes then the entry into Jerusalem and the final week and the, the crucifixion. And that these events seem to be within days of what we call Easter. So he knew there was a danger in returning to Jerusalem. So some people think that these extra two days were him preparing himself for that, not just for Lazarus, but for all that was to come. And that he withdrew to pray and to focus and to uh, fill himself again, uh, ready for that time. Now, that's another huge question is why does Jesus need to pray? I'll leave that for another day. But as he's fully man as well as fully God, he models for us that dependence on his Father in heaven.
A second view which may not be uh, incompatible with that view is that he wanted Lazarus to be dead longer so that the miracle was dramatic. So when he gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days. So he's not raising a body where somebody could say, well, perhaps we got it wrong, perhaps he hadn't really died. Four days of death is pretty uh, conclusive. So there is an, an understanding that quite probably he's delaying it because he needs to, everybody to understand that he has the power to raise people from the dead. Why does he need to do that? Because quite probably within a week or two, or uh, certainly within months, he is going to be killed and they need to trust in his resurrection. So there's a similar trying to give people hope in the midst of difficulty going on. Now, we know that they still didn't grasp it. Maybe they, they did, but it, it, it was an attempt, perhaps, to let them see his power. Lots of you know with the American church leader, Louis Gislow, he says this, if you're waiting with God, waiting is okay. If you're always waiting on God, you'll be frustrated. God never seems to work at the speed that we want him to. And I do like that distinction. There is saying, I'm waiting with you, God. And the Bible talks again and again about waiting and patience. It's a huge part of the walk of a disciple. Psalm 40, familiar to many of us, I waited patiently for the Lord. He heard, he inclined and heard my cry. And we, we know that God lifted us out of the pit, but we had to wait patiently. And we wait patiently with God, having the hope that one day all our prayers will be fulfilled, but maybe not today. So if we're waiting on God, God, why haven't you done what I asked you to? We will be frustrated. So why does God not do what we feel is needed when we want it? Why is waiting part of his economy? I think there are a number of reasons. And if we look at the story of Job, we will know that we, it's, it's not really helpful for us to try and work out what's going on all the time. That was that story I look, we looked at before about the not the what now, but the not the what the why, but the what now. But three things to say. I think very often there is a spiritual battle, and that we're required to pray into and be part of an ongoing battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, between good and evil. That everything that is going on in the world is not what God wants. That's why there will be a heaven, because in heaven everything will happen as God wants. And we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that because that's not the way it is. And there is a battle and there is a conflict and there are setbacks. And part of that is because I think other people have free will. And sometimes what we see as a delay is because God is saying, I'm, I'm not going to force somebody else to do this. They need to choose it. And that can be painful. We're praying for something, but we know that the person we're praying for is resisting. But we keep on praying. The second thing is clear too that Sometimes things don't happen in the timing we want because there are really significant lessons that we can learn. And that we do need to grow in patience. Or like in this story, I think there's a hint that they really need to understand that Jesus could raise a long dead body. 
and that that was really important for the coming season that they were going into. They had to learn that lesson and that meant they went through the grief of Lazarus dying. That if, if Jesus had said, as on other occasions in the Gospels, your faith has healed him, you don't, I don't need to come, they're already healed. That would not have given them sufficient emotional hold on resurrection that they were going to need for the coming days. And it's clear that God is glorified sometimes in the healing and the miraculous, but he is equally, as I said earlier, equally glorified in the overcoming, in the perseverance, in the patience, in the love, in the steadfastness. And often these things are not learnt when life is easy. But I don't become a more gracious and forgiving and patient and gentle person when everything goes my way. But when I walk alongside and through troubles and difficulties, I am refined and shaped and molded to be more like Jesus. So there, we won't know necessarily in any given moment why our prayer isn't being answered, but we do need to hear the promise of victory. He says to Martha, it will not end this way. And that's what we hold on to. That whatever thing we don't feel God is doing right now is not the end of the story. And there'll be a time in heaven, and I say this so often, but I believe it passionately, there'll be a time in heaven when we're able to look back and say, God has been with me and answered my prayers. And all is now well. John Jameson says these words, we get this comforting idea that if we will follow the Messiah, life will somehow be smoother or at least fit together in some good way. And then we run smack into the reality that the only guarantee Jesus made to us had to do with the activities that come after this life. I know that's controversial, but I think he's right. The only guarantee that Jesus made to us had to do with the activities that come after this life, to do with forgiveness, to do with resurrection, to do with eternal life. And Jesus very clearly expected that his followers would have a harder time getting through this life than those who walked away. And Jameson goes on, but we still have these expectations of a saviour. And when Jesus doesn't meet them, we begin to wonder if he really is who we thought he was. And there are thousands of empty church pews that used to be full of people who believed in Jesus Christ, but he didn't live up to their expectations and they went home. So I want to encourage us to have the right expectations, to stand, yes, on the promises of God, but to believe clearly that they are eternal rather than microwave promises for today. And then in the light of eternity, they will come true. But they may not come true in the way we expect or in the time we expect. And that was Mary and Martha's experience. So our questions for reflection. What are we waiting for God to do? And what expectations have we? What could we be asking for and what word of hope do we cling, need to cling on to? 
In other words, let's bring the difficulties that we're going through to God and lay them at his feet and say, I will trust in your victory. I will trust in your, your hope. I will trust in your goodness. And I will follow you. And one day, all will be well. But make, let us not be afraid of asking for healing. Let us not begin as perhaps Martha began, by not being clear in what we're asking of God. We can ask without demanding that he has to do it our way. But we can bring our needs to him, and that's important to do. So let's do that as we close uh, in prayer together. Lord Jesus, you know our hurts, you know our fears, you know our difficulties, you know our longings, you know our prayers. You know the promises that we think and feel and stand on. Help us to see them in the light of eternity and not to interpret them in our way for our ends. But help us to ask. Help us to bring to you all our needs and to wait with you rather than to wait on you. So we bring our prayers to you and offer them now in Jesus' name. And we trust the resurrected Jesus and that one day we too will share in that resurrection and all suffering will go and every tear will be wiped from our eyes and all will be well. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.